Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. The last time we saw the practices of the early church, and it was a good message. If you weren't here, I would suggest that you, you, you know, get it, log on to the website, uh, because it's really a back-to-the-basics message about what church is supposed to be. Today we're going to go into chapter 3. We're going to see the healing of the lame man, who's a beggar, and Peter's subsequent speech. And we'll, you'll notice that this is Peter's second recorded speech in the book of Acts since the giving of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, with John Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, don't look at chapter 3 here. If you remember chapter 2 in its entirety, don't look at chapter 3 necessarily separate from chapter 2. Because we met, you know, we, we've said this before, the chapters and the verses came later on after the scriptures were already put together and the letters were written. Uh, it is possible that what happened here happened in the same day as much of what we see in, in chapter 2 with verses 42 through 47, pretty much the practices of the early church inserted in between as if to say, from this point on, this is what was happening in the church. Okay, so it, it's not everybody would agree with me, but I think it makes sense here chronologically. In verse 1, it says that they were there at the ninth hour. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. And what we see is the apostles continue to observe many of the Jewish traditions, including the appointed times of prayer. You had, it was three of them. You had 9 a.m., which we saw in Acts chapter 2. You had 3 p.m., which you see here. And there was also appointed uh, prayer at sunset. In verse 2, We've seen this before in the Gospels. Disabled people had to beg for money to sustain themselves, and they relied primarily on the generosity of religious people. So a lot of beggars would show up at the temple hoping to evoke compassion from religious people to give them some money to survive. And the man was laid at the beautiful gate. Josephus the historian tells us that the beautiful gate was an ornate gate made of Corinthian brass. It was roughly 62 feet wide and 31 feet high. And it was probably beautiful, hence the name. And there was a lot of traffic because it was a favored gate that people would come in through. So this guy would have a chance of making a decent you know, day's wage from sitting at this gate. And you, you have to understand, if you have a study Bible, a lot of the study Bibles in the back have models of the older, of the temple and what they look like. And they showed basically the, the building itself, and then they have the court of the priests, which was the first court, and then you had the, the court of uh, Israel, the court of women, and then the court of the Gentiles was the biggest court. And 
in these courts, uh, every so often they would have a gate where people could come in and out of the courts. So that, that kind of explains that. In verse 6, Peter says something interesting, and I've quoted this before, but now we can see it in context. Peter says this, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I've heard a quote that said something to the effect of early church leaders didn't have money, but they had the power of God. Churches today have become wealthy, but lack the power of God. I had a conversation with a brother on Monday, and he's, uh, he's a newer believer and still trying to understand the Bible and God's word. And we were talking about a church that he went to where it was the whole focus was on money, and especially for the senior pastor to make as much money as possible. And that was a picture of that, that meant that he was godly in some way. But I kind of tried to show him what the scripture said about that. Now, it's okay to be rich. There's nothing wrong with somebody being wealthy. But the problem is if you become wealthy off the back of the gospel or off of your congregation, I think that the Bible is clearly against that. A few things about Dr. Luke's style here. Remember, Luke was a physician. He describes this man's condition in detail. The first thing he tells us is the man had a congenital defect. He said it was from his mother's womb. So this man, as soon as he came out, this baby grew up and he had this problem with walking. It's congenital. The second thing that Luke tells us is that it stemmed from his feet and his ankles. And there's various, I looked them up, there's various arthropathic diseases of the joints that we could go into, but even in our age of advanced medicine, a lot of these things still can't be healed. And the other thing is, the third thing is, it was a complete healing. This was evidenced by the man standing, walking, and leaping after being strengthened. Now, there's some good lessons we can learn from these 10 verses. The first thing is, or the question is, do you want to find meaning in your life? Everybody wants to find the job or the career that's going to make a difference, that's going to change the world, right? If that's the job that you're looking for, then work for God. And what do I be mean by that? Well, if you live your life close to God, he will do great things with you. Where were Peter and John going before the Lord got a hold of them? On the way to the local tavern? No. They were heading over to pray. And because they were doing that, God gave them something meaningly, uh, meaningful to do. They were open to his leading. And as we'll see later in the chapter, being open to God's spirit is certainly the best precursor to sharing your faith, to sharing your Lord with other people. Let's not be so tight with our schedule that we resist the voice of God when he's calling us to do something. James 4, 13 through 16 James says to people, don't be so foolish as to think, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy that. These are my plans for the next 15, 20 years. You know. um, he said, your life is but a vapor. If God wills, you will do this and you will do that. In the parable of the rich fool, all he was concerned about was building bigger barns and storing more of his stuff. And God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. What did you do with what you had while you were alive. Some of my probably best moments as a Christian was when I was open to a change in direction. To quote Chuck Smith, he said, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. i just give you an example. I was in, oh gee, uh, two years ago or so, I was in Jamesburg, and I was doing some errands, 
and uh, I saw a man laying on the, it was cold out, man laying on really a doorstep. And I, my first thought was, well, maybe there's something wrong with him. So I went, I went up with, to him, and he actually, he was okay, and he was just sleeping there. He was a homeless man. So, you know, one thing led to another, and I bought him lunch. And then I went home, and I thought about, maybe you could use some gloves and a scarf. So I go home, I tell my wife about this man, and, you know, as I'm looking for the basic staples, she's got cookies, she's putting in the bag, she's putting food in the bag, she's got this big bag. I'm like, Heather, he's homeless. He can only carry so much. But it was cool because I went back and it was really a blessing. And then after that day, you know, we, I, I spent a lot of time with the man. And then after that day, I didn't see him again. It's like he disappeared. So we were talking about the scripture in Hebrews 13.1 where it says, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 13.2 where it says to entertain strangers because unwittingly you may be entertaining angels. So we're saying, well, maybe he was an angel. Long story short, two weeks later, I see him in Jamesburg and I go over and I start talking to him again. I have a conversation. And I, I was on my way to work. I get to work. I call my wife and I'm like, hey, I saw that guy again. And I said, but I don't think he was an angel. And she said, why not? I said, well, he used the F word a few times. <laughs> so what was the purpose for me doing that? I mean, you know, I didn't have the money to buy him a home. You know, maybe was it a test? Jesus said, With the poor you will always have. And I'm wondering if that's because, well, first of all, the poor we will always have because the Bible tells us to take care of the poor. And because man is sinful, the poor isn't taken care of the way they're supposed to be taken care of. But I think that another reason that we'll always have the poor is a test to the church. As people of God, do we see people in need and do we hear the voice of God? And even if we don't hear the voice of God, do we have empathy for other people in their conditions, right? So... And one, one, and again, the, the police officer has to come out and meet women. Be careful because, you know, people who are on the street, there could be something wrong with them. They could be violent. So uh, it's not for everyone to, you know, so you, you get what I'm saying. Okay, three things that we can learn about this uh, formerly lame beggar in the scripture is, number one, he was a picture of the hopelessness of sin and death. We see a lot of types in the Bible, a lot of pictures. This was what he was a picture of. Um, the healing was a picture of being saved from his hopeless condition. Only the gospel message and the power of Jesus Christ can cure our hopeless condition. Now let's take those three points that we talked about with Luke and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip back and forth, alternate between the spiritual situation and the physical condition. This man had a congenital defect. From his mother's womb, he could not walk. We have a congenital defect. From our mother's womb, we're in sin. It's just the way it is. It's what the Bible says. And the only way for us to get better is really to be born a second time, like Jesus says, to be born again. We're all born physically. At some point in our life, we, we respond to God, we repent, and we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the understanding of being born again. You're born again spiritually. This man, again, he had a problem stemming from his feet and his ankles. He couldn't walk. We have a problem from birth stemming up from our feet and ankles. We can't walk. And you might say, well, we all get up and walk at the end of the service, but we can't walk spiritually. We do not understand as the natural man what it means to be spiritual until we are born again of the Spirit. And the Spirit teaches us all things, the Bible says. So we can't walk until that new birth. And the third thing is the man had a complete healing. When you become a child of God... When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
you receive a complete healing. There's nothing left that we have to do to earn salvation. It's complete and it's effective. The gospel also does more for us than we realize. Think about, put yourself in it, and I just love to do this, put yourself in this man's condition. He can't walk. He's laid at the gate. Somebody, out of compassion, carries him every day to this beautiful gate, and they lay him there, and he begs for alms. So this man is probably thinking, it's just another day that somebody's going to drop me off at the gate, and I'm going to hopefully get some generous people to help me to eat and to sustain a living. So all he was concerned about was really probably the money. I need some money because I need to eat. He was used to his condition. And it's very interesting because when people are in sin, they can go their whole lives, whether you're 18, whether you're 38, whether you're 60, and if you're not born again, you're used to your condition. You're used to your sin. And you think a few extra bucks is going to be great. My uncle, (laughs) he's what, in his 50s now? He's been wanting to win the lottery now for the last five decades. All he talks about is the lottery. He thinks that a few bucks are going to make him happy and it's going to make his life right. He, and I keep trying to explain to him he doesn't get it. So people are used to this condition, this lame condition, spiritually. And they don't realize that, that being born again is the, is the thing that they need, whether they know it or not. At the day's end, he was completely healed, so he wouldn't have to rely on anyone. Now... He could walk for himself. And that's what the gospel does for us. It helps us to walk for ourselves. God not only saved us from sin, but he also counsels us while we're here. And the rest is just gravy. Anything more is just gravy on top. And the Lord gives us a lot of gravy. He gives us eternal life. He counsels us in the form of the Holy Spirit while we're here. And there's also a lot of, a lot of really neat things that, that we can do while we're on this side of eternity. It's not like we have to leave miserable lives here and just hope, I can't wait to die so I can get to heaven. He wants us to have life, and he wants us to have that life more abundantly. So the question is, what was this man's response, this this man who was healed? And what should be man's response, mankind's response, in general to spiritual healing? Well, it says the man was leaping and praising God. He was an example of being thankful. And this is an area that probably all of us, including me, can improve on. We can always improve on certain areas this side of eternity, and one of them is to be thankful. It kind of reminds me of the ten lepers. Remember, the, Jesus comes in contact with the ten lepers, and uh, he heals them all. And that was common because the lepers were outcasts of society. Nobody else wanted to be infected, so they put them outside of the camp. So these guys huddled together. Jesus comes in contact. All ten of them, 100% healing for 100% of them sends them on their way. One guy comes back, and Jesus says to him, some to the effect of, where's the rest of you? (laughs) Weren't there ten? Only one of you came back? Ten percent of the people were thankful to Jesus. You want to take statistics. So that was a pretty sad thing. Nine of them went about, and they said, hey, I got a new life. They went about with their life, and only one came back to thank Jesus. I believe that one of the manifestations of true conversion is an attitude of gratefulness, which is sorely missing in this world. I, as on my other job, I, uh, you know, run into a lot of, unfortunately, any police officer in any township, people think, hey, that's a great township to work for. Everyone's sinful. Just because you work in a, a town that, other, that people think are a nice township, every township, they're sinners. So you're going to have problems. You're going to have family problems. 
I just I know that when I walk into a situation where it's the parents and maybe a young teen and they're not getting along, um, I try to give some advice to the young teens and say, listen, I know you want to do this and you, you, I know you want to do that. I know your parents are, you know, they feel the parents are too restrictive or there's some type of issue. And I ask them, do you have a job? If they do, they're probably not making a lot. Does your, are you paying rent? No. Well, let me tell you how much rent is. <laughs> are you paying utilities? No. Let me tell you how much utilities are. Gas, insurance, food. By the time it all adds up, trust me, you're, you're 18 or you want to be emancipated and you go out in the world, it won't take long before you come back and you're banging on your parents' door and say, please let me in. But sometimes the bills get too high with me and I want to come back to my parents' house. <laughs> but, you know, it, they don't understand. They don't. And again, it's, listen, it's not always a teen's fault. Sometimes parents, some parents can be difficult. They don't know how to parent. But the point I'm trying to make is that you don't realize that so much is being done for you and you just want more, you want more. You want, that's the way we are. That's the way we are. And if it happens in our marriage, we have problems in our marriage. You take for granted, my wife is, she does everything for me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I mean, she just does everything you could imagine for me. And I, I got to stop and think sometimes, my wife's a blessing to me, and sometimes I'll just say, hey, babe, thank you. You know, and tell her what a great wife she is. And mean it, <laughs> not just say it. But we need to be thankful. And now my son is starting to learn thankfulness. And I tell you, it means a lot to me when he is thankful instead of just expecting that I'll do all these things for him. Even with God's people, excessive complaining really exhibits is an attitude of not being thankful. Let's face it, if the 50-yard wine was an Olympic sport, some of us could take the gold at certain times. <laughs> oh, I have it so bad, Lord. I wish I had someone else's life. I cringe when I hear that. You know, you, I wouldn't suggest asking to trade with someone else's life because you don't know. I want his life. I want her life. Don't do it. I say, I say sometimes, no matter how bad it gets, I wouldn't want to play spin the bottle and see whose life it's going to land on and trade with them. Because a lot of people have it a lot worse than we do. So, you know, don't ask for that. And also, did you ever get cut to the heart when you see someone who has it pretty rough or rougher than you, and you just got done complaining, and you see someone who's, it's, it's an obvious physical malady, uh, or they're, they're having a rough time, and you get cut to the heart, and you say to yourself, oh, man, you just feel terrible. And that's good, because that's, that's the voice of conviction. It's even more convicting when somebody who has a, maybe a, an incurable disease or some type of uh, affliction that has more joy than people who are well. That's really convicting. <laughs> they're praising the Lord, they're thanking God, and you look at them in their condition and you're thinking, boy, I'm, I'm really awful, <laughs> right? It's that conviction. And on the heels of that, the third point about this uh, man was the beggar's life was changed. This was another manifestation of true conversion. A changed life. A changed life. His life completely changed as Peter's did. Remember Peter? The guy who overreacted and then fled and then followed at a distance and then refused to believe that the Lord had risen? Remember that guy? He's a changed man now. What about us? Are we still known by our bad characteristics? Some of these are pretty poignant. And some of us, at least to some extent, have some of these. Are we still controlling? Are we still overbearing? Are we still critical? Are we still selfish? Selfishness, that's a tough one because we're selfish and we don't realize we're selfish. Sometimes it takes other people to point that out in us. Stingy, lazy, 
you know, all these characteristics that we don't want to be, that we unfortunately many times still hold on to. And you think to yourself, man, I was hoping to get past that. Or at the very least, if you've been a Christian for a few years, that maybe some of that has been mitigated. It's been lessened over the years. The Christian's life must be characterized by being in a dynamic state, always in a state of change. And the state of change should be going backwards. It should be going forwards to be transformed into the image of Christ. He's our goal. He's our standard. When I talked about Father's Day, I said, as fathers, we, we can't be lazy with being fathers because our standard is our Father in heaven. And that's the standard we have to strive for with our children. And it's the same thing as a Christian. We need to be in a, a dynamic state, not a static state. Because if you think about waters, what does a static state lead to? It leads to stagnancy. Stagnancy attracts mosquitoes and algae and all kinds of gross stuff. And that's not what you want in your Christian walk. Remember years ago, many years ago, my wife and I, well, before she was my wife, we were dating. And we had a pretty, you know, wasn't a great example. A difficult relationship and, you know, the two of us were stubborn and, um, you know, if she could just listen to me, everything would have been fine. But no, I'm just kidding. We just were both you know, strong-headed, but I remember that most people didn't think we would make it a few months, let alone 15 years. But our fruitful relationship today is a testimony to the Lord Jesus himself. And we often say, where would we be without the Lord? Probably not together, <laughs> but our fruitful relationship is a testimony to the Lord Jesus himself. So all those people that didn't think we would make it see that because of Jesus, we're still, and, and, and let, me, let me go a little bit, it doesn't sound right when I say it, oh, we're grudgingly together because God says, I hate divorce, that's not where I'm going. <laughs> you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side, and we'll be fine, put on a happy face for the congregation. No. I actually remember, uh, as police officers, we have to serve uh, restraining orders. I remember this one restraining order I had to serve on this couple, me and my partner, and get to the door, boom, 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 the husband and wife, we go, we talk to them. Okay, here's a restraining order, here's yours, here's yours. I had never seen this before. The judge actually ordered the husband to stay on one side of the house and the wife to stay on the other. Isn't that insane? He actually laid out that she could have this bathroom and that bedroom and he could have that bedroom and, and he told them to stay on their own sides. I think one reason I don't leave the police department is because of all the stories, but I'll eventually leave. But I have free marriage. No, I, I adore my wife. I really do. I love her, and uh, I think it, it definitely shows. And she, like I said before, before the sermon, she, she's a wonderful wife. So we, we actually have a very happy, fruitful relationship. And, you know, I could do another 15 years without a problem, honey. All right. <laughs> but I do have some free marital advice. I think people like me because I'm corny. There's something about my corny sense of humor. You know, free marital advice. A flag goes up in my mind if when a couple comes before me or a spouse comes before me and all they do is the blame in the relationship is all on the spouse. If it's a woman, he's a bum, he's this, he's that. If it's a, a man, she's this, she's that, whatever the case may be. And I've got to tell you, a flag goes up in my mind because if all you do, if you have a problem with relationship, is to trash your spouse and you don't look at yourself, don't bother coming to me. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm just a pastor. I can't help you because the problem is you're not looking at yourself. And I've had that experience where we've counseled couples where 
just one spouse was just adamant. They don't do anything wrong. And I'm not doing that anymore. If somebody comes before me, you both got to look at your own self and see what you're doing wrong, and then you end up coming together. One of the things as my wife and I started to get better in our relationship is, I have all these, these quirky sayings, was I'd say after an argument, I'd say, okay, nobody's a victim. You're not a victim. I'm not a victim. Now, I'll do this. And we, you work it out. That's what you do when you're married. You work it out. I see a lot of married couples with big grins on their faces. <laughs> all right. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness and in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So you have, again, the second speech recorded since the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 11, you see something happening here. The healed man... He, he holds on to, to Peter. He holds on to Peter. And also, the people around all run to Peter and John. You have to understand something. All this attention that Peter and John were getting necessitated a response from Peter. Wait a minute. These are religious people. Now, I may be guilty of isogesis as opposed to exegesis, which a good Bible teacher does exegesis. He pulls the meaning out of the Scripture. Isogesis is kind of reading into the text. And I may be guilty a little bit of that, but what I see here is that many times religious people, after a conversion experience, after some time has passed, eventually latch on to a man of God and they start to sometimes, in some instances, pull away from God because the man of God is a tangible representation. Okay? They're not learning to, to, to continue following the Lord, but they latch on to the man of God. 
And this goes back to last Sunday where I talked about putting your time into a relationship with God. We talk about church. We talk about Sunday. But we also talk about what happens the rest of the week. You want to put that time in with the Lord and not just give him that one hour out of 168 hours that make up a week. You want to cultivate that relationship with God your Father because you're going to be with him for eternity. Solomon's porch was uh, on the, apparently it was on the east side of the temple. It was a covered porch with columns. And again, you, if you go into some of these Bible models of the early temple, you can get a good idea of where everything took place. You get a, and in my mind, I have a picture of, of that model. And when you go through the scripture and they go through these various portions of the temple, you, you can get a, your bearings geographically of where they're going from and where they're going to. Verse 12, Peter's response. Peter said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now, he didn't have to do that, but we're going to see why he did. Peter does the right thing. He says, you know, it, it's not us that we have any special power or special walk that this man you see is, is walking. He deflected attention off of himself and put it where it belonged. The attention belonged on the Lord. I was taught well, and I think I teach you well. Uh, the, my mentors taught me not to focus on yourself. Uh, they didn't focus on themselves, um, and, and that's, that's a good thing. And I know that none of you would gravitate towards me and look at me any higher than I am because I teach you well from the Scripture. Not to latch on to the man of God, but latch on to God himself. Lloyd makes some great analogies about the, the surgeon and the scalpel. He said, you wouldn't praise the scalpel when a great surgery is done. You'd praise the surgeon. So God is the surgeon. Any of his instruments that we, any of us hear that he uses are just his tools. But in the hands of the wrong per person, those tools can harm rather than heal. Glory to God must always accompany a great work of God. Run from any leader who fails to give glory to God. People have these strange, these leaders, strange titles for themselves. Like they call themselves the Messiah. There's a very popular um, preacher out in California who has a big following who calls himself the mini Messiah. And anything where you're in any way referring to yourself to an aggrandizing term that only belongs to God is blasphemy. It's sinful. Don't follow that. We must always battle our flesh and always give glory to God. And Listen, who doesn't like in any profession, if you're a great carpenter, you like to hear, wow, you do incredible things with that wood. Look at the way you sculpt that molding. And, you know, you like that because you want to be good at what you do. But there also has to be the temp to fight the temptation to receive all the glory for yourself. And say, hey, thank God. God's given me this great ability with these hands. Give the glory to God. Verse 13. He says that Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, who was determined to let him go. The living God glorified Jesus. Now, Jesus is glorified by the living God whom you denied and delivered to Pilate who was determined to let him go. See, Peter wasn't going to allow them to weasel out of what they did. This, is, this comes back to, yes, the scripture talks about uh, God's sovereignty and it talks about how Jesus had to be the sacrifice. But all throughout the scripture, men of God were, were very quick and very bold to point the finger at those who did these awful de deeds. This is man's choice. This was man's responsibility to deliver him up to Pilate. And there's another thing, responsibility. That's a, that's a dying art in our society. There's even Europe, people, um, 
in other countries wonder why, and I've heard people come back from overseas and say, one of the biggest things they know about Americans is they're sue happy. Everybody's suing somebody else. Nobody takes responsibility for themselves anymore. Even if you have a contract where you sign and you read all the paperwork, you know, there's, there's lawsuits on both ends. The person who didn't read it carefully enough and the person who's trying to, uh, to put a scam on the person who's signing it. It's on both ends. Uh, think of one case where a man uh, went to a bar and uh, got drunk and crashed his car. Police arrested him. He had a lucrative job. Because he got a DWI, uh, he lost his job. So the man sues the police department because he lost his job. <laughs> it's like, what gives here? When are people going to take responsibility for themselves? And the cool thing here is I think these guys took responsibility. But again, responsibility is a dying art in our society. Verse 14, he says, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Of course, he's referring to Barabbas. Remember, Pilate said, Whom shall I give to you? Whom shall I release? Barabbas, who was a murderer and a robber and an insurrectionist, or Jesus, who's called Christ. And they said, Yeah, give us Barabbas. You know, take away Jesus to be crucified. Give us Barabbas. That's the world's attitude today. People in our society and many other societies, um, um, Sasha was telling me a lot about the Russian society and he was talking about how he says, you think our music is bad? Their music is laden with profanity and innuendo and outright just vile stuff. But society in general would rather have Barabbas than Jesus Christ. I think about those t-shirts. People wear these t-shirts. You ever see somebody wearing a t-shirt with like Charles Manson's face on it? They were like very popular some years back. Um, this guy was a brutal murderer. And his followers were brutal. And I'm not going to talk to you about what he actually did in detail, but he wanted to start race wars against when tensions were tough between uh, blacks and whites. He wanted to escalate that. Uh, he was a really bad man. And people worship Charles Manson. Oh, Charles Manson, what a great guy. He's an unrepentant murderer. Um, another shirt, another T-shirt, these, these, these pop shirts, Che Guevara, another guy. You see Che Guevara's face one of the fathers of the guerrilla movement in Cuba. I, I read about Che Guevara. He was, a, he was brutal too. Uh, some of his own comrades who were fellow guerrillas with him talked about his brutality and how he, how he butchered people. But people were, oh, he's a great revolutionary. He, he's a murderer. What do these same people think about Jesus Christ? Let me just make sure anybody had those t-shirts on before I continue. <laughs> but what are, what are these people, these same people who, who want Barabbas released to them, think about Jesus Christ? Ah, Jesus. They, they don't have the time of day to learn about Jesus. Verse 15. He says that you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. The prince of life. Actually, in the Greek, the word is archigos, uh, which literally means the originator or the author of life, which kind of gives you a better flavor of the many titles of Jesus, the author or the originator or the creator of life. If you look at John 1 and Colossians 1, it tells you that nothing was made, you know, not the earth, not the world, nothing. Nothing was made until it went through Jesus Christ. He was the author. Creation was, was, was put into existence through him. So th this is how important Jesus is. Now, for, them to, for him to tell them that, that hurt. I mean, this, this is a convicting message. This is not a soft message. Chuck Smith uses the word soft pedal. I, I never heard that, but 
He said the temptation is to soft pedal messages, to make them light and airy and fluffy so that you feel good. It's almost like the, the stuff on the top of a, a lemon meringue. You know, it tastes nice and it's light and airy. But that's not what the messages are supposed to be. The true child of God wants to hear a convicting message. They want to hear something where the Holy Spirit teaches them and helps them to walk. Not, you're okay, well, what do I have to do to be better? What do I have to do to, to become like Christ? Don't worry about it, you're fine. That's not what you want to hear. And this is not what these people heard from Peter. Verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I think, again, a little fire and brimstone again. Peter was a robust figure uh, prior to the Holy Spirit. He was impetuous. He was, I'm not going to say violent, but maybe aggressive in personality, pulling the sword out, um, quick to say something without thinking about it. And probably God, well, definitely God changed him. But he certainly probably continued to contain Peter's boldness and fire. He, Peter had a fire in his belly and he continued to use that to bless these people with these messages. Repent and convert. Repentance, we, we covered repentance, to change direction, to change your mind, to say, well, what God says is right, the way I'm living my life is wrong. You repent. And conversion. The, the word in, that's conjugated in the Greek is epistrephsate, which means he's telling them, you convert. You, plural, is the conjugation in the Greek. You convert. And the word literally means to, to turn again or to turn back. Now, what I find interesting is that uh, from the very beginning, we are sinners. And we have to turn back to God. And he's calling them to turn again, to turn back and face God. The direction you were going, the life you were leading, come to God. Repent of your sins and come to God. Repent and believe. God is the God of second chances. If he could forgive them and give them another chance, imagine what he could do for us. And imagine what he's done for us, which I think is, is sometimes difficult to do. There is no condemnation in Christ, the Bible says. And I still run into people who have a past who are condemning themselves. And I'm going to be your advocate and say, if the Bible says there's no condemnation, who are you to hold yourself in bondage? Who are you to not forgive yourself? God has forgiven you. God is greater than you. And I still see people who, and I'm, I'm not mad, it's just that I feel, I have empathy for these people who still hold themselves, well, I did something so awful. I know I'm a Christian. You've got to get past that because God has already forgiven you. There's nothing that you could have done that he looked down from heaven and say, oh, I haven't seen that one. Look at that, Gabriel. That's pretty bad, you know? So whatever it is you did, God can forgive you. So don't hold yourself in bondage because God's not doing it. Verse 21, he says, uh, whom heaven must receive. So this Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Jesus must remain at the right hand of the Father until the dispensation of grace has run its course. And the restoration, well, sin destroyed everything. Thing, all things will be restored in the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes back for his people, the Lord comes back then in judgment, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and everything gets made good, not the way it is now. So what we're seeing here today is how the power of God changes people. We see how God graciously and completely changed the life of the beggar. 
And let's not forget that the power of God via the Holy Spirit, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, transformed two Peters here. There was a Peter of the Luke's Gospel. Remember him? Again, impetuous, talked too soon, didn't pray enough, usually got the wrong answer except for you know, the time when he said that Jesus was the Christ. And the Peter of the book of Acts. If you were to look objectively at these two Peters, you would say, well, these are two different guys. It's pretty amazing how Peter's life completely was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see Peter not afraid of the authorities anymore. He's like, I saw Jesus resurrected. I'm not afraid. You could arrest me. You could do whatever you want. Where do we go through Acts? Put him in prison. I'm still going to go forth and preach the gospel. Different guy. Keep in mind that the same transforming power is available to anyone today, to everyone and anyone. If you've been a Christian for a while, well, Jesus said when he talked about getting stuff from God in prayer, asking for things, Jesus said, as much as you ask for the Holy Spirit as a child of God, the Lord will give you the Holy Spirit. So if any of us are, are stumbling and we're in a rut and we're kind of plateauing in our walk, pray for the Holy Spirit. I read that scripture and I'm like, I've got to start praying for the Holy Spirit more. Because God says he'll give me as much as I want. You can have as much as God as you want of God. But you have to knock on the door. You have to ask to receive. And if you don't know the Lord, you can have this transforming power. It's available to you too. All you have to do, your first step is to repent. To say, I've lived my life for this long. Whatever you say, God, in your word is true. And, and I'm going to conform to that and believe. And I have faith that you're there, that you're listening to me, that you want to change my life, that you want to transform me. So the choice is yours. Let's pray. Spirit more.